0: The World Trade Center he runs up the subway stairs in a desperate search for facilities, but this is New York, and that was not to be and Thus, on the corner of Park Row and Broadway, he became a poster boy for depends, embarrassed and humiliated, but feeling much better, he flagged down a gypsy cab and offered him a hundred dollars to take him home, nine dollars for the ride and ninety one dollars toward the price of a new car. When the man got home, he ran inside to take a shower and to put on a new set of clothes so he could get back to Manhattan. Coming out of the shower, he flipped on the TV, and as he stood there, he watched the plane slam right into the floor where he worked, where he would have been right now had his loving wife not made him that wonderful, that absolutely, perfectly, incredible, amazing. He broke down and began to cry. My own 9/11 story wasn't so close a call. I was asleep in Santa Monica. The phone rang around 6:30 a.m. and it was my mother-in-law. "New York is under attack," is what I heard her say through my half-awake ear. I wanted to say, "Yeah, so what's new?" And it's 6:30 in the morning. "New York is at war," she continued. This made no sense other than again, it always feels like war in New York. "Turn on the TV," she said, and so I did. I woke up my wife, and as the television faded on, there were the towers, on fire. We tried to call our daughter back home in New York, no luck. Then tried to call our friend Joanne, who works near the World Trade Center, no luck. Then we just sat there stunned. We didn't leave the bed or the TV until 5 that afternoon, when we finally found out that our daughter and Joanne were okay. But a line producer we had just worked with, Bill Weems, was not okay. As the network started to run a scroll along the bottom of the TV with the names of those who were on the planes, along came Bill's name on that screen. My last memory of him was the two of us horsing around at a funeral home where we were shooting a piece about the tobacco industry. Put two guys with a dark sense of humor around a bunch of undertakers, and you've got what we would call Nirvana. Three months later, he was dead. And how do they say it? Life as we knew it changed forever. Really? Did it? How has it changed? Is there enough distance from that tragic day to ask that question and find an intelligent answer? Things certainly changed for Bill's wife and his seven-year-old daughter. There's the crime right there, to have her daddy taken from her at such a young age. And life changed for the loved ones of the other 3,000 who were murdered. They will never lose the sorrow they feel they are told that they must move on. Move on to where? Those of us who have lost someone, and I guess that's eventually everyone, know that while life does move on, the sock in the gut, the sorrow in the heart, will never leave, so ways must be found to embrace it and make it work for you and the living. Somehow we all work our way through our own personal losses, and we get up the next morning and the morning after that, and fix the kids' breakfast, and do another load of laundry, and pay the bills, and... Meanwhile, in faraway Washington, D.C., life is changing, too. Taking advantage of our grief and our fear that it may happen again, an appointed president uses the dead of 9-11 as a convenient cover, a justification for permanently altering our American way of life. Is that why they died? So that George W. Bush can turn the country into Texas? We've already conducted two wars since 9-11, and an upcoming third or a fourth is not all that unlikely. If this is allowed to continue, then all we will have accomplished is to dishonor those 3,000-plus dead. I know Bill Weems didn't die so he could be used as an excuse to bomb innocents overseas. If his death, his life, is to have a greater meaning from this moment forward, it is to make sure that no one else like him will have to lose his or her life— in this insane, violent world, a world we now seem hell-bent on running any way we damn well please. I'm lucky, I guess, that I even get to write these words you are hearing, not just because I get to live in the most wonderfulest country in the whole wide world, but because after 9-11, my former publisher, Regan Books, a division of HarperCollins, which is a division of the News Corp., which owns Fox News, and it's all owned by Rupert Murdoch, was trying its hardest to make sure my career as an author would come to an early end. The first 50,000 copies of Stupid White Men came off the printing press the day before 9-11, but when the tragedy struck the next morning, the trucks that would carry them to the nation's bookstores never left the loading dock. The publisher then held the books hostage for five long months, not simply out of good taste and respect, which I might have been able to understand, but out of a desire to censor me and the things I wanted to say. They insisted that I rewrite up to 50% of the book and that I remove sections that they found offensive to our leader, Mr. Bush. I refused to change a word. A standoff ensued until a librarian in New Jersey heard me talking about the phone call I had just received from the Murdoch publisher, telling me that it looked as if they had no choice— Thanks to my stubbornness, but to pulp and recycle all 50,000 copies of my book that were gathering dust in a warehouse in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I also was told by others not to expect much in the way of a book career after this, as word would